Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, December 21st. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. Let's start with today's weather. Today will be partly sunny and mild, with a high of 47 degrees. Tonight will be partly cloudy, with a low of 28. Saturday will be rather cloudy and mild, with a high of 52 degrees. And now we turn to local and state news stories. Iowa delegation criticizes rail closures. Move to stop illegals, but Iowa GOP says it will hurt ag exports. Aaron Murphy reports from Des Moines. Two major rail crossings in Texas have been temporarily closed to address an influx of migrants crossing into the U.S., a move Iowa's all-Republican congressional delegation sharply criticized this week in a letter to President Joe Biden's administration, citing concerns about the potential impact on Iowa agriculture exports. In a letter dated Wednesday, the Iowa delegation expressed grave concerns with the Biden administration's closing of major rail crossings between Eagle Pass and El Paso, Texas. U.S. Customs and Border Protection said the closures are meant to address a recent resurgence of smuggling organizations moving migrants through Mexico via freight trains. The closures will free up customs officers to assist overwhelmed U.S. Border Patrol agents who need to take migrants into custody, the Associated Press reported. In their letter to Biden, the Iowa Republicans called the closures a short-sighted decision that punishes farmers and small businesses. In addition to scathing criticism of the Biden administration's immigration policy and enforcement, the letter notes the impact the rail crossing closures could have on the movement of agricultural goods. More than a third of U.S. trade with Mexico moves through the two closed crossings, and for every day the crossings are closed, 60 trains sit idle and four. 4,500 railcars face delay, the letter notes. Mexico is the second largest purchaser of Iowa goods, according to state and federal trade data. Iowa proudly leads the country in agriculture, with our farmers working day in, day out to feed and fuel the world, the Iowa delegation's letter reads. The importance of rail for transporting Iowa's grain and agricultural products across the country cannot be overstated. The letter is signed by U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst and U.S. Representatives Marionette Miller-Meeks, Ashley Hinson, Zach Nunn, and Randy Feenstra. Agricultural groups and railroad industry leaders also have criticized the closures. In response to the Gazette, the White House said the temporary action was needed to address a large number of migrants coming into the U.S. by rail. DHS took this temporary action in order to stop a large movement of migrants coming by rail and to protect the health and safety of its personnel, a White House spokesman said in an email to the Gazette. We are working closely with the Mexican government in an attempt to resolve this issue and also surging personnel to the region. We are communicating regularly with industry leaders to ensure we are assessing and mitigating the impacts of these temporary closures. Union Pacific estimates its losses in goods, wages, and transportation costs will exceed $200 million a day if the crossings in both cities remain closed, the Associated Press reported. The rail cars carry many products, including agricultural products like grain, cars, food, and beverage, and industrial commodities, the Associated Press reported.
Migrants often board trains from Mexico into the U.S., but railroad companies also have technologies and systems in place to deter and discover people and contraband entering the country illegally, the Associated Press reported. Union Pacific told the AP it found only five migrants trying to enter the U.S. illegally in the past five weeks. Donald Trump to campaign in Sioux Center. Jared McNett reports from Sioux Center, Iowa. Former President Donald Trump is making at least one more stop in northwest Iowa before the 2024 Republican caucuses are held. On the events page of the Donald J. Trump website, there is now a stop scheduled for the Dort University Campus Center in Sioux Center, Iowa on Friday, January 5th, 2024. According to the website, the doors open at 1 p.m. and the event is scheduled to start at 4 p.m. At 7.30 p.m., Trump is set to deliver remarks during a rally at the North Iowa Event Center in Mason City, Iowa. At present, Trump, who lost the 2016 Iowa caucuses to Texas Senator Ted Cruz before winning the presidential election in November, is leading his primary challengers in Iowa by double digits in polling averages. The latest from the 538 Data website shows Trump ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by 30.9 points and 33.9 points in front of Nikki Haley, his former U.N. ambassador. During his most recent stop in Iowa, at an event in Waterloo, Trump defended his comments about migrants crossing the southern border poisoning the blood of America, which multiple politicians and experts on extremism have said is reminiscent of language used by Adolf Hitler. Trump is previously, has previously said of immigrants from Mexico, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Trump is also reported to have asked why America would accept immigrants from Haiti and, quote, shithole countries, end quote, in Africa. While in office, Trump was widely condemned for saying there was blame on both sides for the deadly violence at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which featured white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and other far-right extremists, and resulted in the death of 32-year-old Heather Hare, who was killed when a man plowed his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and pled guilty to 29 hate crime charges. Trump's defense of his comments about migrants came the same day the Colorado Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to bar the former president from appearing on the ballot in the state under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits anyone who swore an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection against it from holding office. Trump is currently facing 91 felony counts in four separate cases, including one focused on his alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, which he lost to President Joe Biden, 306 electoral votes to 232 electoral votes. Trump's campaign visits to Sioux Center and Mason City will come 10 days before the caucuses. When he held an event in Sioux Center on January 23, 2016, less than two weeks before the year's caucuses, Trump remarked he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The event in Sioux Center will take place about a month after four other 2024 GOP candidates, DeSantis, Haley, 
Ohio businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, and Texas pastor Ryan Binkley attended a Faith and Family with the Feenstras function on the Dort University campus. This cycle, Trump has yet to appear with Randy Feenstra, the two-term congressman who represents Iowa's 4th Congressional District, which is the most conservative in the state. Man charged with murder ruled competent to stand trial. Nick Hytrek reports from Storm Lake, Iowa. After 17 years of mental health evaluations and treatment, a Storm Lake man accused of killing his brother and trying to kill his parents might finally proceed toward trial. A judge on Monday ruled Jose Tovar is mentally competent to stand trial for the 2006 stabbing death of his brother, 21-year-old Miguel Tovar, and the stabbings of his parents, Jose Arturo Tovar and Maria Vela Tovar. District Judge Nancy Wittenberg made the ruling after a hearing in which she reviewed a report by Dr. Arnold Anderson, a psychiatrist at the Iowa Medical and Classification Center, and questioned Tovar about his understanding about the legal procedures in his case. Dr. Anderson's conclusion following his competency evaluation of the defendant is that he has been restored to mental competency to stand trial but must continue faithfully his current prescribed medications to maintain his competency, Wittenberg said in her ruling. She scheduled Tovar, 35, to be arraigned in January 2nd in Buena Vista County District Court on one count of first-degree murder and two counts each of attempted murder and willful injury causing serious injury. Tovar's case has been on hold since January 2007, when a different judge first ruled him incompetent to stand trial. Tovar was diagnosed with a bipolar type of schizoaffective disorder that prevented him from understanding court proceedings and assisting in his defense. He has been in state custody receiving treatment since then, at times regaining mental competency but falling back into incompetency, according to court documents. Tovar was 18 at the time he was charged with the February 19, 2006, stabbing death of his brother and stabbing of his parents at 207 Seneca St. Miguel, pardon me, 207 Seneca Street. Miguel Tovar died of his injuries. Both parents were hospitalized for their injuries and later released. In May 2006, a psychiatric evaluation chosen by the defense found Tovar was sane at the time of the stabbings, but was no longer able to assist with his defense, a finding that led to a judge's order to suspend the case while Tovar was treated for his mental illness in order to restore his mental competency. Victim in Dakota County Good Samaritan Accident Identified From Dakota City Authorities have released the name of a man killed while helping the driver of a vehicle involved in an accident in Dakota County. The Dakota County Sheriff's Office said David Hankins, 66, of South Sioux City, was one of two Good Samaritans to help at the scene of the crash, which occurred December 6th near Mile Marker 2 on Interstate 129. The initial crash occurred at 5.07 a.m. when Nathaniel Orozco, 47, of South Sioux City, struck the concrete median barrier while driving a Toyota Camry. Initially, the car was reported as stolen, but further investigation showed it was not. Hankins and a second driver stopped to help Orozco, who fled the scene. 
while Hankins and the second Good Samaritan, who does not wish to be identified, were at the crash site, a second vehicle, driven by Matilda Magana, Magana, 56, struck the Toyota, causing Hankins and the second man to be thrown toward the westbound traffic lanes where Hankins was struck by a passing vehicle. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The second Good Samaritan and Magana Magana also were injured and transported to the hospital. The incident remains under investigation, and the sheriff's office said in a news release that charges against Orozco are possible. Christmas tree disposal times set in Sioux City. From Sioux City. Fresh cut, live Christmas trees will be accepted curbside in Sioux City from January 2nd to 12th. The city of Sioux City said in a statement that the trees should be clean with no ornaments, tinsel, lights, price tags, stands, or plastic bags. Trees should not be bagged. Tree branches no larger than two inches in diameter and no longer than four feet in length may be loosely placed in customer garbage containers or bundled with prepaid stickers for pickup on their regular garbage day, the statement said. After January 12th, trees can be disposed of free of charge at the Citizens Convenience Center at 5800 28th Street. Trees may also be taken to the Dorothy Pico Nature Center at 4500 Sioux River Road and dropped off in the lower parking lot from December 26th through January 17th. Trees should be clean with no ornaments, tinsel, lights, price tags, stands, or plastic bags, and placed in the lower parking lot. Wreaths will not be accepted, the statement said. The trees will be chipped and used on trails within the park. Mixed bag for farmland prices. Survey. Prices rise in some area counties, fall in others. Mason Doctor reports from Sioux City. Farmland prices in northwest Iowa were mixed over the past year, according to annual Iowa State University data, with some counties posting modest price increases and others seeing their land values decline slightly. Northwest Iowa has the highest per-acre farmland prices in the state. Farmland in Sioux County and Plymouth County has set eye-popping records over the past year or two. In November 2022, a farm in Sioux County netted $30,000 per acre at auction. The month before that, a plot of rich farmland in Plymouth County brought in $26,250 an acre when the hammer fell, which was a record until it was topped by the Sioux County sale. One of the things that pushes the price up there is the high demand for land for some of the livestock operations, said Rabel Chandio, author of the ISU survey and an assistant professor of economics. We also have some very high-quality ground, she added. Some of the reasons we see, like the record high sales that are even north of $25,000 an acre, that sometimes is due to this type of reason. For livestock purposes, you need a plot very, very near, and it sometimes opens up you're very willing to bid for it. In the aggregate, Farmland across Iowa's 99 counties increased in value by an average of 3.7%, or $424 per acre, during the past year, reaching a new high of 11835 per acre as of November 2023, according to the ISU Land Value Survey. This was a subdued price increase compared to recent years. In 2022, the state's farmland went up by 17% over the year prior. In 2021, farmland prices shot up 29%. During COVID, 
we had very, very high increases in land values, Chandio said. Prices vary by location. Farmland in some northwest Iowa counties is worth more than twice as much as land in south-central Iowa. In the counties that saw price declines, they were generally small. An average acre in Clay County is worth $56 less than it was a year ago, while in Buena Vista County, the per acre value went down by an estimated $61. As long as it's less than 2%, it's a very slight decrease. I'm not really, it's not really a fall in land values per se, Chandio said, but the reason we're seeing even the small decrease is because when land values were increasing, the northern areas experienced very, very high increases. Some counties were as much as 25% increase in land values. So we have to bring that back to some of the market norm. So we're beginning to see a very slight decline in the northwest, and overall in Iowa, it's pretty much a stable-ish kind of value, not really declining just yet. Statewide, an estimated 24% of land that was sold during the past year was purchased by investors, half of whom were local and half of whom were not, according to the survey. 69% of the farmland sold in the state during the year went to existing local farmers, and 4% was sold to new farmers. Foreign buyers don't have much influence on the pricing of Iowa farmland, Chandio said. U.S. investors, on the other hand, definitely are a player in the market, she said. Less than 2% of all farmland in Iowa has some foreign interest, she said. So that's a very small factor. Foreign ownership is not really a major concern in Iowa's market. Seven northwest Iowa counties saw a modest uptick in prices, according to the survey. And now these national and world news stories. Giuliani says he's broke. He was ordered last week to pay $148 million over ballot conspiracy. From New York, Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy Thursday, acknowledging severe financial strain exacerbated by his pursuit of Donald Trump's false 2020 election claims and a jury's award of $148 million to two former Georgia election workers he defamed. The former New York City mayor listed almost $153 million in existing or potential debts, including almost $1 million in tax liabilities, money he owes lawyers, and many millions of dollars in potential legal judgments in lawsuits against him. He estimates he has assets in the range of $1 million to $10 million. The eye-popping damages verdict that Giuliani was ordered to pay a week ago resulted from his false statements about the election workers. They said his targeting of them after Trump narrowly lost Georgia to Democrat Joe Biden led to death threats that made them fear for their lives. Ted Goodman, a political advisor and spokesperson for Giuliani, said in a statement, Giuliani's decision to seek bankruptcy protection should be a surprise to no one, because no person could have reasonably believed that Mayor Giuliani would be able to pay such a high punitive amount. Declaring bankruptcy likely will not erase the $148 million in damages a jury awarded to the former Georgia election workers Rudy Freeman and Wandrea Shea Moss. Bankruptcy law does not allow for the dissolution of debts that come from a willful and malicious injury inflicted on someone else. After the verdict, Giuliani, 79, said he would appeal, repeated his claims that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, insisted he did nothing wrong, and suggested he would keep pressing his claims 
even if that means losing all his money or ending up in jail. Giuliani's financial woes have worsened due to investigations, lawsuits, fines, sanctions, and damages related to his work helping Trump try to overturn the 2020 election. Among his potential debts, he, he listed lawsuits brought by two voting machine manufacturers who say he and others defamed them with claims of a stolen election. Juliana's lawyer, Adam Katz, suggested that an August court hearing is one of those cases that Giuliani was close to broke and unable to pay a number of bills, including a $12,000 to $18,000 tab for a company to search through his electronic records for evidence. In September, Giuliani's former lawyer, Robert Costello, sued him for nearly $1.4 million in unpaid legal bills. That case is pending. In international news, gunman kills 14 at university. Violence in downtown Prague, Prague, pardon me, leaves more than 20 people injured. From Prague, a student opened fire Thursday at a university in Prague, killing at least 14 people, officials said, and injuring more than 20 in the Czech Republic's worst mass shooting. The bloodshed took place in the philosophy department building of Charles University, where the shooter was a student. Prague Police Chief Martin Vondrasek said the gunman also died, authorities said. His name was not released. Vondrasek said 14 people died and 25 were injured. Authorities warned the death toll could rise. Police gave no details about the victims or a possible motive for the shooting. Czech Interior Minister Vit Rakusen said investigators do not suspect a link to any extremist ideology or groups. Vondrasek said police believe the gunman killed his father earlier Thursday in his hometown of Hostom, just west of Prague, and that he also planned to kill himself. He didn't elaborate. Later Thursday, Vondrasek said based on a search of his home, the gunman was also suspected in the killing of another man and his two-month-old daughter last week in Prague. The chief described the shooter as an excellent student with no criminal record, but didn't provide other information. The gunman suffered devastating injuries, but it wasn't clear if he killed himself or was shot to death in an exchange of gunfire with officers, Vondrasek said. The shooter legally owned several guns. Police said he was heavily armed Thursday and was carrying a lot of ammunition, and what he did was well thought out, a horrible act, Vondrasek said. The building where the shooting took place is near the Voltava River in Jan Palach Square, a busy tourist area in Prague's Old Town. The government quickly sought to quell concerns that the massacre was backed by foreign interests. There's no indication that it has anything to do with international terrorism, Rakusin said. Pavel Nadoma, the director of the nearby Rudolfinum Gallery, said he watched from a window as a person standing on a balcony of the building fired a gun. Previously, the nation's worst mass shooting was in 2015, when a gunman opened fire in the southeastern town of Uherski Brod, killing eight before, before fatally shooting himself. UN. More than one in four in Gaza Strip are starving. Risk of famine grows due to limited aid entering the enclave. From Rafa, Gaza Strip. More than half a million people in Gaza, a quarter of the population, are starving 
according to a report Thursday by the UN and other agencies that highlights the humanitarian crisis caused by Israel's bombardment and siege on the territory. The extent of the population's hunger eclipsed even the near famines in Afghanistan and Yemen of recent years, according to figures in the report. The report warned that the risk of famine is increasing each day, blaming the hunger on insufficient aid entering Gaza. It doesn't get any worse, said Arif Hussein, chief economist for the UN's World Food Program. I have never seen something at the scale this that is happening in Gaza, and at this speed. Israel said it is in the final stages of clearing out Hamas militants from northern Gaza, but months of fighting lie ahead in the south. The war has killed almost 20,000 Palestinians and pushed Gaza's health sector into collapse. Only nine of its 36 health facilities are still partially functioning, all located in the south, according to the World Health Organization. Top U.S. officials to talk immigration in Mexico. Delegation to speak with president as he talks, uh, pardon me, as talks go on in Washington. From Washington. A delegation of top U.S. officials is expected to visit Mexico soon as negotiations over how to enforce immigration rules at the two countries' shared border continue on Capitol Hill. Republican and Democratic lawmakers are debating border policy changes as part of a larger conversation over U.S. assistance for Ukraine and Israel. The upcoming visit to Mexico comes amid controversy over the closure of two rail closings in Texas this week. U.S. officials said the personnel had to be redeployed to handle high numbers of migrants illegally crossing the border. Mexican businesses warn the closings are hampering trade. President Joe Biden spoke with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador on Thursday and agreed that additional border enforcement was needed so the crossings can be reopened, according to White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby. Kirby said Biden asked Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood Randall to travel to Mexico in the coming days to meet with Lopez Obrador and his team to discuss further actions. Fat Leonard expected to face more charges from Miami. A defense contractor at the center of one of the biggest bribery scandals in U.S. military history is expected to face additional charges following his return to the United States from Venezuela, a federal prosecutor said Thursday. Leonard Glenn Francis, nicknamed Fat Leonard, faced a federal judge for the first time since snipping off his ankle monitor last year and disappearing weeks before a sentencing hearing on charges that he offered more than $500,000 in cash bribes to Navy officials, defense contractors, and others. He later was arrested in Venezuela and returned to the U.S. in a large swap Wednesday. Venezuela also released 10 American detainees in exchange for the Biden administration freeing Alex Saab, a Colombian-born businessman and close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, who was charged in the U.S. in a money laundering case. Taliban allows girls of all ages at religious schools. From Kabul, Afghanistan. Afghan girls of all ages are permitted to study in religious schools, which are traditionally boys only, a Taliban official said Thursday. 
Afghanistan is the only country in the world with restrictions on female schooling, and the Taliban have been globally condemned for banning girls and women from education beyond sixth grade, including university. The Islamic schools known as madrasas are one of the few options for girls after sixth grade to receive any kind of education there. Mansour Ahmad, a spokesman at the Education Ministry in the Afghan capital, Kabul, said there are no age restrictions for girls at government-controlled madrasas. They are about 20,000 madras- there are about 20,000 madrasas in Afghanistan, of which 13,500 are government-controlled. Terrorism Kevin McCormick, 30, a Connecticut man who pleaded guilty to planning to fight for the Islamic State group in Syria, was sentenced Thursday to 12 years in prison on a terrorism charge, a lighter punishment than prosecutors sought. Mortgages. The average rate of a, on a 30-year mortgage loan dropped to 6.67%, a six-month low from 6.95% last week, mortgage buyer Freddie Mac said Thursday. The average rate on 15-year fixed-rate mortgages fell to 5.95% from 6.38% last week. Lawmaker attacked. Andre Desmond, 30, a man accused of attacking a Connecticut state representative outside a Muslim prayer service in June, was ordered Thursday to undergo a mental competency evaluation. Ukraine. The European Union on Thursday said the final bit of a multi-billion euro support package to Ukraine to help keep its war-ravaged economy afloat this year, leaving the country without a financial lifeline from Europe as of next month. Sudan. Fighting between Sudan's military and a paramilitary group forced up to 300,000 people to flee their homes in a province that has been a safe haven for families displaced by the conflict, the UN said Thursday. And finally, Arizona. Peggy Judd and Tom Crosby, Republican officials from Arizona's rural Cochise County, pleaded not guilty Thursday to felony charges for delaying the certification of the county's 2022 midterm election results. The two had refused to sign off on the vote count by a deadline. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, December 21st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Mark Allen Bailey, 58, of Colton, South Dakota, passed away on Monday, December 18th, 2023, at his home, comforted by family after a long-term neurological disease. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 22nd, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Ponca, Nebraska, with Father Owen Corte officiating. Burial will follow at South Creek Calvary Cemetery in rural Ponca. Visitation with family present will be one hour prior to services at the church Friday morning. Online condolences may be offered at MeyerBroschapels.com. More Funeral Home of Ponca is assisting the family. Mark was born on August 8, 1965, in Sioux City, Iowa, to Richard Dick and Georgine Gates Bailey. He married Therese Sullivan on March 4, 2000, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Ponca, Nebraska. Mark and Therese owned Stonegate Property Inspections from 2001 until 2019, when Mark's health started to decline. Some of Mark's favorite hobbies include camping in the mountains with Therese and his faithful dog, Abby. 
construction, building projects, reading, and spending time outdoors enjoying nature. Steve Gustin Stephen James Gustin, 50, passed away on Friday, December 15th in Fayetteville, Arkansas, after a brief hospitalization. Steve was born on December 25, 1972, and grew up in Dakota City, Nebraska. He was the middle child and only son of Jim and Kathy Gustin. Steve was a true and dedicated friend, the life of every party, and loved motorcycling with his brothers. He had the biggest heart and would give the shirt off his back for someone in need. Whether he was hosting his annual crawfish boil for family and friends, serving on the volunteer fire department, or donating Thanksgiving turkeys to Meals on Wheels, he cared deeply for those around him and made everyone feel like they mattered. Steve was a prankster and brought comic relief to just about every situation. He spoke his mind and would engage in lively conversations on almost any topic. Steve married his high school classmate, Nikki, in 2012 and spent their time living in Sioux City and Dakota City before recently moving to Arkansas. Steve and Nikki enjoyed traveling together, weekends in their camper with their dog Duchess and later Lizzie, treks to Sturgis, cruises to the Caribbean, and a trip earlier this year to Hawaii. He loved Husker football, even when the team wasn't performing well. He'd comment on what needed fixing before declaring that he'll always bleed red no matter what. Steve loved his family and spoke to his parents daily. He loved deeply and tried to protect those around him from hurt and harm until his dying day. We carry a hole in our hearts that Steve's life and energy once filled. The pain we feel is deep, and we can't imagine what life will be like without you. We will miss you every day, our husband, son, brother, dad, grandpa, uncle, cousin, and friend. A celebration of life will be planned at a later time. Memorial donations may be made to the Dakota City Fire Department, P.O. Box 46, Dakota City, Nebraska, 68731. By the way, this next name is spelled H-U-I-B-R-E-G-T-S-E. Visitation and services for Robert Wiebregst will be held on June 14, 2024 at First Reformed Church in Orange City. More details will be available at woolman.com. Robert was a graduate of the University of Iowa and Drake Law School. His career included working as a private attorney, Sioux County attorney, assistant attorney general, area prosecutor, and supervisor of child support attorneys for the state of Iowa. Memorials are encouraged and will be given to Prairie Ridge Care Center and First Reformed Church, both in Orange City. Funeral services for Cynthia Marie Cass, 65, were held at 2 p.m. Thursday, December 14th at the Gorman Funeral Homes, Converse Chapel, with Pastor Bill Williamson of the First Baptist Church officiating. A reception followed, immediately following the service. Inurnament will be in the Holy Name Cemetery in Marcus, Iowa at a later date. Cynthia Cass died at the Memorial Hospital of Converse County in Douglas, Wyoming. She was born Wednesday, November 19, 1958, in Lamars, Iowa, the daughter of Thomas Herbert and Sharon Virginia Wilder, Wilberding pardon me, Weezer. She was raised and educated in Marcus, Iowa. She moved to Wyoming in 2001 for a job opportunity. She worked for the Converse County Sheriff Office from May 2004 to June 2007, and then for the Douglas Police Department from June 2007 to May 2017. 
Cynthia enjoyed horseback riding, training horses and dogs, crafts, and companion dogs. In lieu of flowers, memorials to Douglas Strong in care of Converse County Bank, P.O. Box 689, Douglas, Wyoming, 82633, would be appreciated by the family. The Gorman Funeral Homes, Converse Chapel of Douglas, Wyoming, was in charge of arrangements. And finally, Nina M. Vondrak, 74, of Hinton, Iowa, died Tuesday, December 19th. A mass of Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 22nd, at St. Michael Catholic Church in Sioux City, with Father Peter Nguyen as celebrant. Burial will follow at Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be today, Thursday, December 21st, at the church, from 4 to 8 p.m., family present at 6 p.m. Vigil service at 7 p.m. Online condolences may be offered at MeyerBrosChapels.com. Arrangement is with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. And now these sports stories, starting with the NFL. Rams start strong. Hold off Saints to boost playoff hopes. Greg Beecham reports from Inglewood, California. Matthew Stafford passed for 328 yards and two touchdowns. Rookie Puka Nakua had nine catches for a career-high 164 yards and a score, and the Los Angeles Rams surged forward in the NFC playoff race with a 30-22 victory over the New Orleans Saints on Thursday night. Kyron Williams rushed for 104 yards and a touchdown, and Demarcus Robinson added 82 yards receiving and another score in the fifth victory in six games for the Rams, who are above 500 for the first time since week one. With its second win in five days during a self-described remodeling season, Los Angeles also jumped past Minnesota and moved to sixth in the NFC standings in its bid to secure a wildcard playoff spot and an increasingly possible opening round showdown with the Detroit Lions, Stafford's team for 12 seasons. Los Angeles led 30-7 with 12.44 left in the fourth quarter after scoring on six of its first eight possessions, but allowed its opponent to make it interesting for the second straight week. Derek Carr threw touchdown passes to Juwan Johnson and A.T. Perry on the Saints' next two drives, with a two-point conversion trimming the Rams' lead to eight points with 3.53 to play recovered an onside kick, and then got a key first down on a nine-yard jet sweep, and the Rams ran out the clock on their fourth straight home victory. Carr passed for 319 yards and hit Rashid Shahid for an early 45-yard touchdown for the Saints, whose two-game winning streak ended with a painfully slow start and 450-yard pardon me, 458 yards allowed by their defense. Although this loss hurts its chances, New Orleans is still in serious contention for a playoff spot and the NFC South title because it finishes the season with two games against division opponents, starting with Tampa Bay on New Year's Eve. In the NBA, Murphy scores 28 to help Pelicans get past Cavaliers. From Cleveland, Trey Murphy III scored 28 points while starting in place of New Orleans star Zion Williamson, and the Pelicans pulled away in the second half to beat the undermanned Cleveland Cavaliers 123-104 on Thursday night. Murphy started for the first time this season and helped offset the absence of Williamson by making six three-pointers as the Pelicans won for the fifth time in six games. 
C.J. McCollum scored 18 points and Brandon Ingram added 17 for New Orleans. Dean Wade had 20 points and Isaac Okoro 16 for the Cavs. Jazz 119, Pistons 111. Kelly Olinick scored 25 points and shorthanded Utah handed Detroit its 25th straight loss, one short of the NBA single season record. The 2010-11 Cleveland Cavaliers and 2013-14 Philadelphia 76ers share the record at 26. The 76ers hold the overall mark at 28, a skid that started in the 2014-15 season and carried over into 2015-16. Bulls 114, Spurs 95. Kobe White scored 22 points as Chicago handed visiting San Antonio its 21st loss in 22 games. White had 12 points in the fourth quarter to help the Bulls break it open. DeMar DeRozan finished with 21 points after scoring 27 Wednesday night to help the Bulls win for the eighth time in 11 games. Thunder 134, Clippers 115. Shai Gilgias Alexander scored 31 points. Chet Holmgren gave Pardon me, gave Oklahoma City the lead for good with a dunk he threw off the backboard to himself, and the Thunder ended Los Angeles's nine-game winning streak. Holmgren finished with 23 points, and Lou Dort added 21 for the Thunder. Bucks 118, Magic 114. Giannis Antetokounmpo had 37 points, 10 rebounds, and 6 assists, as Milwaukee beat Orlando for its sixth consecutive victory. The Bucks went unbeaten on their season-long six-game homestand and have won 15 straight games at Fiserv Forum. Grizzlies 116, Pacers 103. Ja Morant Morant had 20 points and 8 assists in his first home game following a 25-game suspension to help Memphis beat Indiana. Desmond Bain led Memphis with 31 points and also had 7 assists. Timberwolves 118, Lakers 111. Anthony Edwards had 27 points to steady Minnesota, and the Timberwolves handed visiting Los Angeles its fourth straight loss. Wizards 118, Trailblazers 117. Kyle Kuzma scored 32 points as Washington held off host Portland for its fifth victory of the season. In other NBA news, Morant a winner in his first home game. Memphis, two-time All-Star Ja Morant made good on his chance Thursday night to try to top a perfect ending. The Memphis Grizzlies' dazzling point guard played his first game at home since the end of his 25-game suspension to start the NBA season because of his social media antics with guns. He scored 20 points in the Grizzlies' 116-103 victory over the Indiana Pacers. Morant made quite the splash in his return to the NBA on Tuesday night, scoring 34 points and the game-winning bucket against New Orleans. Morant called that game the perfect ending to a perfect day. On Thursday night, he helped lead the Grizzlies to just their second home victory of the season. With Morant banned from watching games from the bench with his teammates during his suspension, empty seats were easier to find than fans in Memphis. Lakers' James sits out, citing tendonitis. From Minneapolis, 
LeBron James sat out the Los Angeles Lakers game Thursday night against Minnesota to rest his left ankle on the second night of back-to-back games. Bothered by tendonitis in the ankle, James had 25 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists for the Lakers on Wednesday night in a 124-108 loss at Chicago, falling an assist short of a second consecutive triple-double. Out. New Orleans forward Zion Williamson, unspecified illness, sat out Thursday night against Cleveland while Cavaliers all-star guard Donovan Mitchell was also out due to illness. And finally, the stat of the day, 0-7. The Toronto Raptors, which are 11-16 on the season, pardon me, 11-16 and 16 on the season, have yet to beat a division foe, going oh nothing within the Atlantic Division. The Raptors will try to break the skid Friday night at Philadelphia. And now on to NHL news. Paul's third-period goal lifts lightning from Tampa, Florida. Nicholas Paul scored the winning goal with 1.13 left in the third period and added two assists as the Tampa Bay Lightning beat the injury-impacted and league-best Vegas Golden Knights 5-4 on Thursday night. Paul put home a rebound for his second straight three-point game. Tampa Bay right wing and NHL points leader Nikita Kucherov had a goal and two assists. Braden Point had two goals and an assist, and Alex Barre-Boulet also scored. Andre Vasilevsky turned aside 30 shots. Sabres 9, Maple Leafs 3. Jeff Skinner scored it twice, including the go-ahead goal, and added an assist, and host Buffalo responded to its most embarrassing loss of the season with a rout of Toronto. Capitals 3, Blue Jackets 2 in overtime. Alex Ovechkin scored his first goal in 15 games, with 53 seconds left in overtime to lift Washington at Columbus. Penguins 2, Hurricanes 1 in a shootout. Sidney Crosby scored his 19th goal of the season in regulation and then beat Pyotr Kochetkov in a shootout to lift host Pittsburgh over Carolina. Blues 4, Panthers 1. Joel Hofer stopped 38 shots. Pavel Buknevic scored twice and St. Louis won at sliding Florida. Predators 4, Flyers 2. Philip Tomasino scored twice, including the go-ahead goal with four minutes and one second remaining, and Nashville won at Philadelphia. Oilers 6, Devils 3. Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Adam Ernie scored in a span of 69 seconds early in the third period, as Edmonton snapped a three-game losing streak with a road victory over New Jersey. Stars 4, Canucks 3 in overtime. Matt Duchesne scored with 9.2 seconds left in overtime, giving Dallas a home victory over Vancouver. Wild 4, Canadiens 3 in overtime. Kirill Kaprizov took a pass from Marcus Johansson and beat Canadiens goalie Sam Montembold, scored with 49 seconds remaining in overtime, lifting host Minnesota over Montreal. Avalanche 6, Senators 4. Nathan McKinnon scored four goals to extend his career-best points streak to 17 games. Miko Rantanen scored twice and host Colorado rallied past Ottawa. 
Flames 3, Ducks nothing. Elias Lindholm had a goal and an assist, and goaltender Jacob Markstrom stopped 27 shots as Calgary won at Anaheim. In other news around the NHL, Golden Knights, Iose, two goalies, pardon me, Golden Knights lose two goalies to injury from Tampa, Florida. The defending Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights were without goalies Adrian Hill and Logan Thompson for a Thursday night's game at the Tampa Bay Lightning. Thompson, who is at 10-5-3 with 2.71 goals against average, left Tuesday night's 6-3 loss at Carolina early in the third period with an upper body injury. Hill, who is at 10-2-2 with a 1.93 GAA, missed the first seven games in December with a lower body injury and lasted just 6.25 in his return against Ottawa on December 17th. Jiri Patera made his second appearance this season in relief of Thompson on Tuesday. Isaiah Seville was recalled from Henderson of the AHL. We've got some interested goaltenders going in there. We've got to play well in front of them, Vegas coach Bruce Cassidy said. Patera went into Thursday's game with a 3-0-0 record and a 2.70 goals against average in four career NHL games. Seville has not appeared in an NHL game. I will say this, actually. We're probably the only team that's dressing a tandem in the NHL with undefeated goaltenders, Cassidy said. That's a positive, right? Lightning. Defenseman Mikhail Sergeyev, who took a shot off the back of his left foot Tuesday, didn't play. Lightning coach John Cooper is hopeful that Sergeyev will only miss a game or two. And the stat of the day, 36. Former NHL star Jeremir Jaeger, in his 36th professional season, debuted this season for his hometown Kladno Knights in the Czech League. Jaeger, 51, is the NHL's second all-time leading point scorer. He made his debut for Kladno as a teenager and returned to the club, which he now owns, in 2018. And finally, one story from Major League Baseball. Otani named AP's top male athlete for second time in three years. Greg Beecham reports from Anaheim, California. Before Shohei Atani stepped into the bright lights of Hollywood and signed the most lucrative contract in professional sports history, baseball's two-way superstar put together yet another season of unparalleled brilliance from Tokyo to Anaheim. What can this singular talent possibly do next? The Los Angeles Dodgers are eagerly paying $700 million to see for themselves. But what Otani already did in 2023, both for the Los Angeles Angels and for Japan's team in the World Baseball Classic, is the reason he was selected as the Associated Press's Male Athlete of the Year for the second time in three years. Shohei is arguably the most talented player who's ever played this game, said Andrew Friedman, the Dodgers president of baseball operations, after signing Otani to a 10-year contract last week. Otani edged inter-Miami superstar Lionel Messi and tennis great Novak Djokovic for his AP honor in voting by a panel of sports media professionals. Otani received 20 of 87 votes, while Messi and Djokovic got 16 apiece.
Nikola Josic, the Denver Nuggets NBA Finals MVP, got 12 votes. After winning his first AP Male Athlete of the Year award in 2021, Otani has joined an impressive list of two-time winners of the honor, which was first handed out in 1931. Multiple-time winners include Don Budge, Byron Nelson, Carl Lewis, Joe Montana, Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, and four-time honorees Tiger Woods and Lance Armstrong. Four-time winner LeBron James is another generational superstar who chose Los Angeles as a free agent, while two-time honoree Sandy Koufax remains one of the greatest players to wear Dodger blue. Otani has upended decades of conventional wisdom during his six years in the majors, even surpassing most achievements of Babe Ruth while playing in an infinitely more difficult era. Most new frontiers in sports are crossed incrementally and gradually, but Otani has toppled barriers that stood for a century with peerless skills, confidence, and hard work. Otani unanimously won the AL MVP award in 2021, and he repeated the feat in 2023 after finishing second in 2022 to Yankee slugger Aaron Judge, last year's AP Male Athlete of the Year. This year began with Otani's dazzling MVP performance for Japan's championship team in the World Baseball Classic, complete with a clinching strikeout of Angels teammate Mike Trout. He then turned in his third consecutive spectacular season, both on the mound and at the plate in Anaheim, despite an early end after he injured his pitching elbow in August. Otani led the American League with 44 homers, 78 extra base hits, 325 total bases, and a 1.066 OPS as the Halos' designated hitter. He also held hitters to an AL Best 184 batting average, while ranking second in the league with 11.39 strikeouts per nine innings, and third with a 3.314 ERA at the time of his injury. There's nothing like him, and there's nothing that you would say he can't do, former Angels manager Phil Nevin said late in the season. Anything is possible with show. I don't know who else you can say that about in baseball history. And that does it for this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, December 21st. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.